All right, today we're going to start Proverbs chapter 20. And uh, um, chapter 19 was a, was a, I thought was a phenomenal chapter. I think it really helped us put a lot of things together and a lot of things that we were looking at uh, up to that point uh, and give us an understanding of, of got to focus on uh, the study of human nature. If you're going to work with people, you know, you have to understand why people do the things that they do, say the things that they say. And uh, there's a pattern to all of that, and that's so important when you when you look at it. We, we saw how that uh, people will create devices. You know, the Bible said there's many devices in a man's heart. How a person will create devices that will uh, allow them to sidestep the clear principles of the Word of God uh, and, uh, you know, and then to ultimately justify uh, what they want to do. And we know that that's just called rationalization, you know, in, in life and all the things that we deal with. And last week we talked about what I thought were some really uh, good, solid principles. You know, we took that verse there in 24 of chapter 19 and talked about a, a um, you know, a slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom. We talked about how that uh, made the application that so many of God's people do the same thing, and we likened it to a one-handed Christianity. Somebody who just gives half of what they should be doing to the Lord, uh, in the work of the Lord, in the ministry. And uh, we called it a one-armed Christianity. And you'll remember, uh, I talked about three basic things that will keep any person, and these are all traits of human nature, three basic things that uh, will uh, keep you or why people never really uh, learn anything from God. And uh, the first thing, as we talked about, was our hard-headed approach to God. We get to the idea that our way is the only way, and, you know, we get an unteachable spirit when it comes to the Lord. And hard-headedness is, is maybe good when you hit your head on the ceiling, but it isn't good when you're dealing with the Lord. And you've got to be able to uh, come to the point where you are willing to change about yourself whatever you need to change to be whatever God wants you to be. The second thing we talked about was our half-hearted attempt to, to learn the Bible. You know, we just don't put into it anything. And I've said it many, many times. You only get out of something what you put into it. I have people whine and complain all the time about, well, I don't have this, I don't get this, and I don't feel this, I don't feel that. Well, and I ask, what do you put into it? I mean, you just expect that you're going to show up here or anywhere and it's just all going to fall in your lap. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. And many times, you know, that's a device. You, you really don't want anything. You know what? But you want to complain about it like you really do want something. But the principles are clear. You only get out of something what you put into it. Uh, you know, there's people who don't go to church anywhere or hardly go to church, and they're always complaining about the problems they got in their life. I don't have any friends. I don't have any of this. Well, I don't, no, wonder, no wonder. You know, you only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. And many people, many of God's people, you know, it's always a half-hearted attempt when it comes to learn the Bible, the Word of God, or, or whatever. And then we talked about, I think, a great key uh, is not only learning from our own mistakes that we make, and we're all going to make them, but we learn from those. That's, that's a positive thing. But learning from the mistakes of others. Realizing that God has allowed uh, us to look at those things without making a judgment against anybody. Because we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But there are some things that, uh, you know, that we need, to, we need to learn from people who make bad choices in life. And so we don't make the same bad choices. And I remember taking over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and talking about how that, uh, you know, he says that in the Old Testament, all the things that happened to the nation of Israel were for, uh, for our examples and our examples and our admonition. That we might learn from that. And he says to that, take heed lest you fall. 
So learning around you what goes on that isn't very good or will be bad for you is, is not very, is a, is a good thing to be able to do. I, I took a, and we looked at probably one of the greatest examples um, uh, of that is the life of Samson. Samson reminds me of so many of God's people that I've met throughout my life. Samson is a guy who just could never get the victory. And yet, God had something for him to do. God had a plan. He's one of the judges in Israel. He's listed over there in Hebrews chapter 11. He was one of the key judges that God wanted to use the nation of Israel. But he never became the judge that he needed to be in his life. And so many of you, and I said, I ended with this last week, so many of you are just like that. Uh, God has something that he wants you to do. He has something that he wants you to do. And many of God's people will never get it done. And they get it done for the same two reasons that Samson never got it done. First, was the places that he went. Samson got into some things that he never should have got into uh, as a Nazarite. And as a Christian, there's some things that you'll get into, some places you'll go, uh, that you should never get into as a, as a child of God. And the second thing that messed him up was the people that he associated with. He associated with people who were the enemies of God. He found a woman. Uh, who was uh, of, of a nation who was the enemy of God. She was the enemy of God. And she utterly was his downfall. And of course, you know, those are the things that uh, uh, fundamentally uh, the bad choices that he made in life. And what will always be our downfall will ultimately be the bad choices that we make in life. And in that example, I showed you uh, how the devil will always meet you where, where you're not supposed to be. You know, it's just that simple. When you go where you're not supposed to be or you hang out with who you're not supposed to hang out with, the devil will always win. And that's because you put yourself in a situation where he has the high ground. You know, in a combat scenario, if you're going to fight a fight on the ground, you want to know the terrain, you always want the high ground. It's always harder to get up a hill to take the position uh, than you be on it and fire down on the ones that are coming up. And when the devil gets the high ground in our life, he's going to win. And we give him the high ground by, by those things. And, you know, and some of the association that, you know, that, that Samson got into, uh, they, or we get into, are not always with the world. Sometimes it can be God's people. Sometimes God's people get a very negative attitude. They get, they get things in their life that they're not willing to deal with. And, um, you know, they're never satisfied just to, to destroy their own life. They always want to take somebody with them. And um, it's one of those things where we learn some great lessons. And... Uh, then I, I, I finished up by showing you the two kinds of instructions. Uh, the instructions of your father that, uh, uh, that God gave you in the word of God and the instruction from those who will cause you to err and pull you away from God. Uh, you know, and without a doubt, these are the issues that God's people are going to face. All of us, every one of you are going to be up against these exact same things. Whether you ever get the victory of God in your life or not, is not necessarily, don't take this the wrong way, it's not going to necessarily be based on how much time you spend in the Bible. Because a lot of God's people spend time in the Bible, but then they counter that by hanging out with the wrong people and going to the wrong places. It's the whole package. It's understanding that when you got saved, God separated you from the world. He sanctified you. He sets you apart. And you're not to be part of that system anymore. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away and all things become new. And now you begin to build those things in your life. And, you know, that's, that's the only place that the victory lies. And I, shoot, I deal with people all the time. You know me, I love people, man. I, I love people. That's why I let that little squirrel go. I love that squirrel. You know, and Chris Zabowski said, you know what, the reason why the squirrel hung out here because there were so many nuts in this place. And that's probably true, too. 
He found a gold mine. He's probably out there right now organizing a whole group to come back in and take over the place. I'm going to tell you something. In almost 50 years of ministry, I've never seen it fail. These are the issues that will you'll face, and these are the issues that will defeat you. And these are the things that will keep you from ever getting the victory. These things will kill you quicker than a speeding bullet. The places you go and the people you associate with, because they'll always lead to bad choices in our lives. And sometimes it's with the world, and sometimes it's with God's people who are living like the world. Now today, moving into chapter 20, I want to do something for you. I like, uh, I like places where uh, I, as a pastor or our church, uh, goes on the record. You hear politicians say that all the time. I want to go on the record saying this. And, of course, he's lying when he says it. He just, you know, <laughs> but he wants you to think he's not. But I'm not lying to you today because I'm going to take you from the Bible. And I want to go on the record today. I've been waiting for this for a while. And, uh, you know, uh, I had no idea it was going to fall into all the events that uh, where we're at right now. And, and I'm going to talk to you about a subject that needs to be defined today, biblically. You know, 100 years ago, the message I'm about to preach to you today uh, would have would really been unnecessary. It really would have. But not today. And I want to go uh, on record today uh, for you to leave you here with a complete understanding of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. And it says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby uh, is, is not wise. Uh, where's... Uh, Scott Deedy, way back in the back there, stand up and ask God blessing on the offer or on the ministry, uh, on the message this morning. And then we're going to get into the ministry, and we are going to take up another offering. So go ahead, just cover them all for me. Go ahead. Now, we live in a time period of the church when being deceived is the order of the day. It really is. God's people are totally deceived today. Most pastors are totally deceived today. I have a message that I preach uh, out of Matthew where it, it's a three-point outline. very simple. It's a great little devotion if you ever want to use it in, in volleyball. Point one is be not, be not deceived. Number two is be not disarmed. And number three is be not discouraged. You see, when you get disarmed, then you're going to get deceived. And when you get disarmed and you get deceived, they're going to wind up getting discouraged. Once you lose your standard of truth, people all the time, they're upset with me or they talk about the fact, well, you know, he makes so much deal about the Bible, the King James Bible and all these things and, and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, and I know that I do. And the reason why I do is because once you, if, if, once you lose the absolute standard of truth, the Bible, uh, then we'll use their standard of right and wrong and there'll be no morality. If you go to Europe today, you'll find a, a country or a, a, a continent that is completely amoral. Uh, there are no good churches in, in Europe. I mean, there may, if they are, they got four or five people in them. Europe is a cesspool of immorality. You know why? Because they, ha- and they had the truth. I mean, they had the truth. The greatest period in church history started with them, and today they have no truth at all. Where you and I <coughs> go to <coughs> talk to somebody that goes to church, <coughs> 
across this city and we'll ask the question, uh, does your church teach the King James Bible as the Word of God or do you follow the other translations? They don't have that question in Europe. You know what the question is in Europe? Two Christians going to two different churches. The one guy will say to the other guy, is your pastor an atheist or does your pastor believe in God? You've got churches in Europe <coughs> that are atheistic. The pastor doesn't believe in God. He doesn't teach it. It's a, it's a show, but it's still a church. And that's where we've come to, and that's where this country is going to come to, because of the fact that once you lose your absolute standard, you lose all moral basis for right and wrong. And if there's anywhere that God's people have been totally deceived, it's in the area of drinking alcohol and uh, drinking, uh, and the Bible's teaching on it. <clears throat> and we talk about it on Thursday night, but I have never taken the time <clears throat> to do it the way that I'm doing it now, uh, to go on the record. And, uh, you know, uh, there'll be this, John's already told me he's going to take this and put it into a pamphlet. Uh, we're going to put Billy Sunday on the front of it, you know, and it'll be a thing where, uh, that, uh, it's something that this church, everybody needs to know. You, you young kids, you deal with Christian, young Christians all the time that think it's okay to drink. You do. And, uh, I'm going to show you today and define it from the Bible. Why, uh, why social drinking or whatever you want to call it is, uh, completely outside the realm of the Bible. And I'm going to lay it out to you in a way that you never thought about it. That's what I do. <laughs> I always come at something th- th- differently than everybody else does. Uh, because I go deeper than anybody else does. I want to see the bottom line on it. And I'm going to give you the bottom line this morning. I think you'll be quite amazed. Not at me, but at the bottom line. I mean, uh, uh, you know, in Kansas City, <clears throat> it's incredible. The number of churches, large and small, that take the position that drinking uh, is in moderation is okay. I mean, I've, I've read these guys' little things on their website. I've, I've talked to some of them personally. <clears throat> and they basically follow this mindset. In drinking alcohol, you have three levels. You have those that are just users. Then you have those who are abusers. And then you have those who are alcoholics. And their teaching is <clears throat> that as long as you... Stay a user and never become an abuser and never turn into an alcoholic. That's okay. Now, here's the fundamental problem with that. And I'm going to use the word stupid a lot today. So just prepare yourself. Somebody says, well, I don't like the way you talk. You're going to like it less before I get through. But I want to make a statement today about some things. And I want to show you the stupidity of that kind of statement. You never give human nature the license to do anything. I've dealt with people for almost 50 years. I've dealt with alcoholics who could never get past it. I've dealt with alcoholics who, uh, who, who, who gave their whole life over to it. I'm going to tell you something. I've never met an alcoholic that was a bona fide alcoholic that didn't think in their own mind they were just a user. You tell your human nature that it's okay to do something a little bit that is wrong in the Bible, <clears throat> it'll wind up being stronghold in your life. You say, how do you know that? Because I've dealt with it for 50 years, and you never give human nature an inch. Paul says you crucify the flesh. You don't play with it. You don't give your flesh a little bit of what a lot is bad. You don't give it anything. And there's, I've seen pastors post on their face, Facebook place, whatever. <coughs> And, and be out there and hold up a, a, a big old beer and, and talk about how, how wonderful it is and, and all this stuff. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. And it's so clear to me that the farther we get as Christianity and as Christians from the Bible, the worse we're all going to become. And along with that, the ones who hold to God's word uh, now, we're a cult, see? 
We're false teachers. We're heretics. The deception has taken hold. A hundred years ago, everybody understood what was right and what was wrong. Today, booze is okay. Smoking cigarettes is okay. Legalizing uh, marijuana. You know, that'll be a great thing when Missouri does that. It won't matter what the Bible says. It'll matter now that it's not a crime anymore and, and you can do it. And I understand. I get it. I get it. But now we're a place where homosexual and same-sex marriages are okay. Human nature, when it loses the standard of morality that is an absolute truth, will always get into trouble. That's why in the Old Testament, God gave the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments wasn't given for them to keep because God knew they couldn't keep them all. The Ten Commandments was a standard of measurement of holiness that God gave them that he wanted them to measure themselves by and do the best that they could. For instance... In 1900, just 117 years ago, the King James Bible was the established as uh, the book of God. It was in England, it was in everywhere in Europe, and it was in America. From 1600 to around 1900, or a little bit thereafter, I want to tell you something. That there was only two Bibles on this planet. One of them was the Douay Reims, and the other one was the King James 1611. When you walked into a Christian bookstore to buy a Bible, you had two choices. And everybody knew what the one was associated with, and everybody knew what the other one was associated with. But see, that's changed today. Now, would everybody be black then? That was truth, 100% truth. Just 117 short years later, now it's changed, and it's not truth anymore. You see, that poses a problem for me. Because truth never changes. You don't change the truth. The truth is always the truth. And what has happened, the truth hasn't changed. It's still the Word of God. What happened is God's people, churches, pastors have been deceived. For instance, around 1900 up to 1920, a guy by the name of Billy Sunday preached across this country. An incredible preacher. Probably won three or four million people to Christ uh, through his preaching. And he went from the East Coast to the West Coast, from North to South, and everywhere in between. And he preached on booze and alcohol and the drunkenness that it brought. Jay, uh, he, is, he, he, for, uh, he was an incredible preacher. And he preached, and his whole concept of Billy Sunday, he single-handedly, around the 1920s, brought in the 18th Amendment, which shut down alcohol and brought in what we know as prohibition, that this country, you couldn't buy a drink of alcohol anyplace. The whole country, through one man preaching. And it lasted from 1920 to 1933 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt repealed it with a 21st Amendment and brought it all back in. But for that period of time, one man's preaching across this country, taking the Bible, laying out the, 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 the ungodliness and all the stuff that went with it, and a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about this morning. He changed the course of this country that the whole nation paid so much attention to one man's preaching and people got behind it that they went to Washington and said enough is enough and they shut it down and you couldn't buy a drink unless it was in a bootleg saloon someplace one man with one book changed the face of this country then they brought it back if he was alive today and walked through the modern day Baptist church he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray And he's one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, if not the greatest preacher. 
He would not be welcome in 98 to 98, 99% of the churches that you're welcome into today. You know why? Because they don't accept this message anymore. Now, I asked the question, was he wrong? Three or four million people got saved through his preaching. Was he wrong? Was he out of line? Was he teaching heresy? Why was it truth back then and four million people came to Christ over it, but it's okay for you to do it today in your church from your pulpit? I'm just asking. How do you get in a country from a place? How do you get in a church from a place where something for, what, 1,400 years was right? And then the last hundred years before the Lord comes back, that's all no good anymore. And now sin is okay. Now, do what? you know why you've never asked that question before in your life, some of you? You know why you just went along with the whole concept and you never asked yourself that question? You've been deceived. You've been deceived of just accepting the status quo. You've been deceived in seeing what you thought was Christianity, what you thought was real. Today you're going to find out it isn't real. Now, churches today, God's people, have lost their standard of truth. And that's why we've been deceived. And yet throughout your Bible, just starting with your Bible, throughout your Bible... You see it all. It was, it was wine that messed up Ham and Noah in Genesis chapter 9. It was wine and strong drink that overthrew Ben-Haddon in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. And it's the judgment of God that will be upon bartenders and the host of drinking parties. Read Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Don't take my word for it. And it's the money from booze that everybody says, well, we'll let it in, we'll tax it, and we'll put it into our schools, and we'll put it into our infrastructure. And and yet Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 12 says that the, the money from that kind of lifestyle and that kind of stuff destroys a nation. Lamentations chapter 4 verse 21 says it's booze that is behind nakedness. It says in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 11 that, that, that wine and strong drink was what the devil used to destroy the nation of Israel. Oh, and let's don't forget this. Way back in Genesis, when the devil wanted to destroy the plan of God and he came to the woman, a type of the church, before he could ever get across what he wanted to do and get her to do what he wanted to do, he got her a drink off the vine tree. Standard operating human nature, isn't it, guys? You want to get what you want to get from a gal? You want to take advantage of her? First thing you do is buy her a drink. Loosens up the situation. You can't beat that Bible. It's an incredible book on human nature. Last week, I, we talked about Samson. Samson, and it was such a powerful thing. Samson was a Nazarite, Judges chapter 14. And as a Nazarite... He had to take a vow. A Nazarite, I told you this last week. A Nazarite was a guy that that he had something that God wanted him to do. He had a specific task. And he had to separate himself from some things to accomplish that task. And it's a very powerful picture. First thing, he wasn't allowed to touch anything off a vine tree. Second thing, he wasn't allowed to touch dead people. 
unsaved people. And in fact, last third thing is he, he, uh, he couldn't cut his hair. We talked about how that all fit in last week. He was to be separated for the task of God. I want to tell you something. God's got something he wants you to do. Whether you know it or not, whether you care about it or not, he saved you for a purpose. He didn't save you so you could develop that lethargic attitude you got today toward him. He saved you for a purpose. And to accomplish that person just like a Nazarite in the Old Testament, you have to separate yourself from things. God's people just don't want to do that today. Now, I want to walk you through what the Bible says, based on Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, about drinking and alcohol and social drinking in the Bible, based on Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Now, we've been deceived. Somebody said one time, alcohol will be the cause of all your problems. And that's true. And it will completely deceive you to the place that after it takes control of you, the same alcohol that caused all your problems, now you will think will be the solution to all your problems. We've been deceived. And let me say this starting out. I really don't care if you drink or you don't. I don't care if you're a user, abuser, or an alcoholic. It doesn't matter to me. I'm here to help you. I'm just preaching the truth to you today. Unless you're in, in, in one of my areas of ministry of leadership, if you're a deacon, uh, you know, or you're, uh, that's another whole world. And of course, the bottom line is that, uh, uh, but I, I'm not here to tell you what to do in your life. There'll be people that'll hear this and walk out of here, probably people online here and say, you know, I don't agree with that. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. I'm not here to preach this because I want you to agree with me. I'm here to preach this because it's the truth. You do with it whatever you want. But I'm not here to judge you. I want you to know that. God will take care of that. 20 or 30 years from now when you lose your kids. And they go that way. When you lose your health. When you wind up down at Restart or City Union Mission, or you wind up losing everything you have or losing your life, then that God will take care of that. That's between you and Him. My job is not to look at you and judge you this morning. My job in being here is to preach the Bible to you. You do with it what you want. I mean, every Christian I ever met who was involved in drinking and all that stuff, was no different than any drunk I ever met on Skid Row. They all justify themselves. They all have a device to rationalize it. I mean, some of God's people embrace stupidity like it was a virtue. And I've seen it all my life. I mean, I never met a drunk in my life that didn't know where First Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, when he started to talk to me, he said, Well, now you know, preacher, the Bible says, Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and I'd often infirmities. I said, yeah, he says a little wine. Had a guy one time, he says, ah, you know, you preachers, you know that they drank in the Bible. Then I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I tell you, I know exactly. Paul drank. I said, what do you mean he drank? He said, Acts 28, verse 15. It says right there that Paul was on his way to, on his way to Rome and he stopped off at the three taverns. <laughs> it's in your Bible. He stopped off at the three taverns. I'm surprised I never got that question in Bible study, but then most of you didn't want to reveal your drink. <laughs> it actually says Paul was on his way to Rome and he stopped off at the three taverns. Now that's a good verse if you want to prove it's okay to drink. For me, who digs a little deeper, three taverns was a city 
30 miles from Rome where people stayed over called the three taverns. But then I wouldn't tell you that because I don't want to ruin your rationalization of it. And oh, I love this one. And we'll get to this in a little bit. Jesus, Jesus turned water to wine. Don't you remember that wedding that he went to and he turned the water to wine? We're going to get there in a moment. I'll probably pray right before I get there because that time, you know it ain't going to work out very good for you. And I'll pray again and you can slip out of here and just feign sick or something, you know. Now, let me give you the definitive chapter in the Bible on alcohol and drinking. That's where you always start. Somebody said one time, you can't ever build a doctrine based on a verse or a passage. That's stupid. Every, every doctrine in the Bible goes back to a definitive verse or maybe a definitive passage. Your job as a Christian, if you ever want to figure out the Bible and the things in life, get the definitive chapter on it. Definitive chapter is the lowest common denominator of whatever the truth is God's going to give you. And in, in, in when it comes to alcohol and drinking or strong drink or whatever you want to do, the definitive chapter is Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's where it starts. Everything we're going to study, you would study, go through the rest of your life in the Bible about drinking, whether you should or whether you shouldn't, anything. We'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses, verses 30, 28 through 33, is the definitive chapter on it. Now let's read it. God speaking. Deuteronomy 32, 28. Uh, for they are a nation void of counsel. Neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? Verse 31, for their rock is not our rock. You know there's two rocks in this world? A lot of people think Peter is the rock. Upon this rock I build my church, Matthew 18. He's not the rock. No, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 said that rock was Christ. But I want you to know that there's two rocks in this world. There's the false Christ and there's the true Christ. For everything that God does, the devil has a counterfeit. And uh, uh, Christ is our rock. But the devil is a false rock. So he says there, for their rock is not our rock. You see that? Now he just told you there's two rocks. Anybody not see that? Well, wait for a moment. Anybody not see that? Okay, let's move on. Now, if you get, get hung up here, just raise your hand. I'll help you. For their rock is not our rock, even our enemies being themselves being judges. Oh, look at verse 32. For their wine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine... Now, you see how he did that? Verse 32 is their vine. Verse 33 is their wine. You see that? He's covering all the bases here. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. So not only is there two rocks, now we know there's the two wines in the Bible. Now we know that there's two vines in the Bible. Now what I'm about to show you is that it's never about how much or how little you drink. I want to establish this point very early, then I'm going to beat you to death with it the rest of the message. It's never about whether you're a user or abuser or an alcoholic. And again, I don't care what you do. You're looking at a man who's not sitting up here judging anybody because I don't care. It's none of my business. But my job as a pastor is to preach the truth. And I want you to have the truth, my people. If you're online listening to this and you don't like it, I understand. It's no problem. 
I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing it for the visitors, though I hope you enjoy it, but I really don't care. I'm doing it because I have an obligation to my people to give them the truth. And I'm going to give you the truth. And the truth is there's two rocks and the truth is there's two wines in the Bible. And you better understand it. Because this idea that's being propagated by all these idiotic pastors, that it's not about, it's about whether you're a user or abuser, it's never about that. It's never about that. He says their rock, he says their wine. And it comes down to the fact is whether there's two kinds of wines in the Bible. There's God's wine. And there's devil's wine. I'm going to show you. I'm going to define them both for you. But I'm telling you right now, in the Bible, it's not about how much you drink. It's not about, well, I'm a Christian and I love God and I just drink a little bit. Or we just have a social dish. I've had people, you tell me stories of people that uh, uh, that uh, are going out to Applebee's someplace before they go to Bible study. And they're all ordering margaritas except the person is teaching the Bible study. And everybody's laughing because of the fact, well, I don't have to teach tonight so I can have a drink. Truth of the matter is, with the Bible you got, a drink would probably help you if you're teaching. But the bottom line is that that's where we're at today, you see. And I'm here to tell you, and I'm going to show you, it's not about how much you drink. Because that's the standard concept. You know, well, I don't drink very much, so I'm not an alcoholic. Well, I don't drink a, a little, little bit every once in a while, so I'm not an abuser. It isn't about that. Clearly in the Bible, you have God's wine and the devil's wine. The question is not how much do you drink. The question is, how much of the devil do you want in your life? That's the question. Once we define it as God's wine and the devil's wine, then how much you moderation goes out of the picture. Now the question is for you. The Bible says, give no place to the devil. The Bible tells us very clearly to give no place to the devil. Make no provision for the flesh. It tells us that. So once you see the definitive passage on it, and now we're going to move through here like a freight train. Once you see the definitive passage on it, the question that you've got to keep in your mind is that not how much you drink. Why well, just have a couple beers a night to relax? Why well, just have one once a week? That isn't the question. The question is this now. How much of the devil do you going to allow in your life as a child of God who is supposed to be a new creature in Christ Jesus? All things are passed away. All things become new. I'm going to tell you this. You let the devil in one inch, he'll take the whole thing. And you thinking that you're smarter than he is, you've been deceived. Now let's stop and look at God's wine first. Let's look at this. Bible makes it clear in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that there's two kinds of wine. One of them is God's. He says right there, for their vine. And he says down there in verse 33, their wine. Showing you that there's two types, two kinds. Now let's look at God's wine first. Bible makes it very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And then over in Hosea chapter 4 verse 11, there's two kinds of wine. He says in verse 11, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. See, there's wine and then there's new wine. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 14 says this. Butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. Here it comes. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. Now, God's wine is grape juice. It's never the fermented stuff. It's grape juice. 
Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine, here it is, as the new wine. You want a definitive verse? Here it is. As the new wine is found in the cluster. And one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. You see, there's a blessing in God's wine. There's a curse in the other one. You know how stupid God's people are that they look for the blessings of God in the devil's cup? Almost as dumb as looking for the blessings of God in the devil's Bible. I'm hot today. I want you to know that. I'm on a roll. My back's hurting so bad, I'm going to preach to you so I can forget the pain. You're going to experience my pain. Genesis chapter 40 verse 10, just one more time. And the new vine, uh, and in the vine uh, were three branches, and it was though that it budded, and her blossom shot forth, and the clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was near my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. Grape juice. New wine will be grape juice that's found in the cluster. I want you to know that. New wine, God's cup, God's wine, God's vine will never be the fermented stuff. That's the, their wine of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Once you get the definitive chapter on it, you see it, man. You can't argue with it. You may not agree with it. You may go on your life the way you're going. But you'll leave here today understanding it's not how much you drink or how much you don't. It's how much of the devil's cup are you going to put in your life as a child of God. Boy, that changes it up. And he tells you there's a blessing in the cup, the wine of God, the new wine. And the new wine will always be grape juice in the cluster. Now, here's your verse. Here it comes. Bible always will tell you, you don't have to tell it anything, though you try to. Now, watch this. Come over here to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, look down at verse 26. The context here is the Last Supper. Now this is where we base our Lord's Supper that we take a couple of times a year on right here. In fact, Paul quotes the same passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's given him instructions on the Lord's Supper. Here's what he says. This is Jesus speaking. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it. And gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed among many for the remission of sins. Now watch it very carefully. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. It's grape juice. You know why? Because grape juice, Deuteronomy chapter 32, is the pure blood of the grape. And the reason why we use grape juice for communion instead of Mogan David, the reason why we do what we do with grape juice is simply because it represents the pure blood of Christ. I'll get here in a minute, but I almost was going to say, but I'm coming that way. Now I'm telling you, it's the fruit of the vine, it's grape juice. Now, it says in verse 28, it's of, I'll drink it, it says here in verse 28, for this is the blood of the New Testament. You see that? 
You want to put this note right by this when I'm done here. This is the blood of the New Testament. Look at verse 28. For but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth this fruit of the vine until I drink it new. See that thing? Now that's why it's called new wine. It's called new wine because it subsolates the New Testament. It's called new wine because that's what we're going to drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's God's wine, which is grape juice, which is the pure blood of the grape, which represents the blood of Christ. Now, based on that sound piece of doctrine, when we take the Lord's Supper here, we do it with the fruit of the vine, grape juice. You know how many churches will drink fermented wine? That is the most blasphemous thing you could do is to substitute in the most holiest time we're communing with the Lord, where we're commemorating the death of Christ and the shedding of His blood. How much blasphemous could it be to substitute the devil's cup for God's? But I guess that's no big deal. I mean, some of you have already been substituted the devil's Bible for His pure word of God for a long time. You've been deceived. You see, it's not how much you drink. It doesn't matter whether you're a user or you're an abuser or you're whatever you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one beer a day, one beer a week, one beer a year. I don't care. That's between you and the Lord. It's about how much of the devil are you going to allow in your life by partaking of his cup. That's all. That's all it is. How much of the devil's cup are you going to allow in your life? And the second question is, how stupid are you? He died on the cross. He shed his blood for your sins. And then you, we get such a, an, un, we get so deceived in our hearts and our minds that we actually think because I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven, I can do what I want to do. All things are lawful. Not everything is expedient. I get it. But I want to tell you something. If you don't think for a heartbeat, God doesn't have a problem with you substituting the devil's cup for his in your life. He does. Amos 3.3 3 says, how could two walk together except they be agreed? You can't. And it has nothing to do with your moderation. It has nothing to do. Well, I just do it a little bit. I do it to relax. Lady said one time, well, I can't sleep without having a couple of drinks before I go to bed. She said, I've tried everything. She said, I've tried counting sheep. I said, quit counting sheep. Just talk to the shepherd. You know why we won't talk to the shepherd? We want that drink. Calms us down. Makes things a little loose. Puts us in a relaxed attitude. That's what the devil's cup does for you. Now let's look at the devil's wine. They looked at God. Now let's look at the devil's. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 32 and 33 here for a moment. He says, for their vine, there it is, is the vine of Sodom in the fields of Gomorrah. First of all, his cup is associated with homosexuality. Well, that doesn't mean every homosexual is a, 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 an alcoholic. But the devil's wine is associated with it. Their grapes are grapes of gall and clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragon, the cruel venom of asp. A dragon, we know what that is, an asp is a serpent. This wine, his vine, is connected with the two 
stereotype that the devil is. He's a great red dragon and he's the serpent. Look at Proverbs 23, verses 19 through 21. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and the drowsiness shall close a man with rags. There's your wine-bibbers. I know churches right now that have wine-tasting parties. They'll have their little singles ministry. They'll have this little group over here, you know, and they'll, they'll have wine tasting parties. Oh, that's so nice. That's wonderful. You probably ask God's blessing on it before you partake of it, don't you? Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 through 34. Now, this is without a doubt. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, mark this. Some of you were drinkers and drunkards before you got saved. God, thank God he, de- he delivered you from it. But you're going to relate to this passage. I want you to have this as my gift to you today. Because this is the greatest passage in the Bible that shows and defines what drunkenness really is. Some of you are saved and you still drink and you still think it's okay and you're an idiot. uh, But you, you can have it too. But this is the greatest passage in the Bible on being drunk. Now, I've never been drunk. I never have. But I've been around a lot of people who have been drunk. When I was in the army... Because I played the trumpet, they, they made me, uh, I got to travel all over, all over New England playing taps for all the boys that were killed in Vietnam. That was a great experience. And uh, at least once a week, I got called out. I got to go everywhere, Nova Scotia. I mean, I got, it was great. And, uh, but I always had to go with these guys uh, that were from my unit that were drinkers. And uh, we'd get there, you know, and everybody would be all spruced up, and we'd do the funeral, and I'd play the taps. And I want to tell you something. I could play taps like nobody but I had generals crying, man. I'd do that, turn, play taps, and then I'd turn around, and I'd blow that echo the other way, you know. It's like you play the taps one way, and then you turn around and play it facing the other way, and it drifts back over like it's... Oh, I had a general come up one time, put his arm around me, and he said, Son, that was the greatest thing I ever... I said, Make me a sergeant. <laughs> no, 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 no. Make me like you. Make me a general. I'll just follow you around. Make me, make me one star less than you. And I'll just follow around and blow my horn for you all the time. How'd that be? I could play taps, man. I could play taps. One time I did a general that got killed. The only general that got killed in Vietnam. And I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, generals get 21 gun salutes. And so, uh, and I'll tell you, they, they had brought in 21 howitzers that were ringed behind me. And I didn't see them. They were down over the hill. And I was standing on the top of the hill. And they were down over the bluff. 21 I mean, 21 uh, 75 millimeter houses. And they were incredible. And I'm up there, you know, and I, I get the signal, you know, the rifle squad is fired, you know, three times. And then I see him bringing to attention. So I bring my horn up and I blow the taps. And as soon as I was done, those howitzers blew my hat off. We're right behind me. The concussion was going over the top of my head. 21 howitzers blew. I thought, I thought, I thought the Viet Cong had come to, come to Massachusetts, man. It was the most incredible thing I ever saw in my life. But I could play taps. But the downside was that I had to travel with these guys. And as soon as the funeral was over, the VFW took everybody over there, and you know what happened. Free booze. And everybody got drunk as a skunk. I'm telling you what, I had to always drive the van home. And they were puking up in the back. It smelled so bad. They were sick. They got fighting. The, 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 the general had to give them order. The, the, there was always an officer. I don't even know what happened to him on the way home. But, but, but there was an officer that pulled us up there, got us in line. And he says, gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now. After this funeral is over, we're going back to the VFW. If one of you guys gets so drunk that you start hitting on the widow, 
you're going to be court-martialed. Because that happened. I mean, they're incredible. Once you get drunk, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm telling you, I, I, I never drank. I just, I drove that thing home, and I'll tell you, I had my head out the window because it smelled so bad. They're puking in the back. They're fighting. They're singing. They're telling war stories, you know, and all this stuff. I just wanted to get back. I know it. I've been around them all my life. I know it. I, you know, it was that kind of stuff that I didn't want any part of it. Do you, what is so good about retching your guts up in the morning after a great time on Friday night? Anything? Well, here's the passage for you. Who hath woe? I know. That's not in there, not with me. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contention? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? That's, that's some good questions there. And you're, most of you can say, me. One time in my life. Who are they? Verse 30. They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not upon the wine when it is red. It giveth his color in his cup. It moveth itself aright. Now did you see that? Look not upon it, the wine, when it is red. When it giveth his color in the cup. His. That wine is somebody. It says his. Did you ever get introduced to Mr. Glass of Wine? It's a his. It's a his. There's a person connected with this wine who is a dragon and a venom of an asp. At the last, it biteth like a serpent, stingeth like an adder. Verse 33, thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thy heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or he that is lieth upon the top of a mast. Look at verse 25. Sorrow, contentions, which will lead to contusions. Babbling, redness of eyes. Verse 30, wine and mixed wine. It's fermented. It's his wine. Verse 32, it's connected with the poison of a serpent and a dragon. Verse 32 says, Thine eyes shall behold strange women. Yeah, and the more you drink, the better she looks. And you, 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 you say perverse things. You're out of your mind. You know what? God's wine will let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This wine will put somebody else's mind in your mind. It's not about how much you drink. It's about how much of the devil you're going to allow in your life. As a Christian, child of God, who loves Jesus, loves going to church. Verse 34, being drunk like being seasick, that room spinning around you. Like being on top of a mask in the sea, a high mask, and it's all going back and forth, the room going around. You're so sick to your stomach. Oh, what a great passage that is. Now, you couldn't miss that unless you went to a church that apostatized and took Baptists off their name to, to, as a device to get away with uh, from the absolute standard. Or some modern-day evangelical mess that is filled with unsaved people playing at church. You couldn't miss it. That thing is so clear. And along with this, I need to deal with this. This is the standard answer. John chapter 2. Let's all turn over there now. We'll see 
Jesus turning the water to wine. Oh, how many times I've heard this. Somebody say, well, you don't, you preach, you shouldn't drink. Well, that's right. But Jesus turned water to wine. I always say, wonder what kind of wine it was. You think it was Mogad David? You think it was a red wine or a white wine? Oh, I know. We get white robes. It would have to be white wine. It goes right along with the Bible. Now, I want to show you something. The truth of the matter is, in John chapter 2, when he turned the water to wine, that was grape juice. It was the fruit of the vine, John chapter 2. Now, I know that most of you are probably, this is not fair, what I'm about to say, because you're so shallow in the Bible, and you've probably been saved for 15, 20 years, you're so shallow in the Bible, this will probably insult your intelligence. But did you ever wonder why that the first miracles in the Old Testament was somebody turning water to blood in Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, and that's a type of Christ? And then the first miracle in the New Testament was somebody turning water to wine that was a type of blood by Christ? Did you ever wonder about that? Did you ever search that out? Of course you haven't. Now, boys and girls, I, I don't want to ruin your spirits today, and I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about the ones you drink. But if Christ turned that water in John chapter 2 in the fermented wine, the devil's cup, in John chapter 2, and gave it to people to drink, then he broke the law in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Because Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth a bottle to him, and to make him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Now, I don't remember exactly in my notes of my other Bible, but I think when that thing was all done with all the things that he did and the water pot he turned, I think he had something like 300 gallons of, of, of grape juice. Now, if that was fermented stuff, there were some people that got stiff that day. I want to tell you something. If he did that in John 2, then he's a gilder sinning, and he couldn't even save your lunch money, let alone save your soul. Because he's as guilty as anybody else. That Bible says he that keep the law and offended in one point is guilty of it all. And the bottom line is, he didn't turn that into food. You actually think, now with what we know, that God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, would take the water at a wedding, which is a type of the wedding of the Lamb. But we don't have time to get into that today. That's why when a guy drank it, he said, I never tasted like this in my life. You're right. You've got a foretaste of what it's going to be when Christ comes back. The new wine based on the New Testament. That's going to be drunk new in the kingdom. But we don't have time to get into that today. I don't want to confuse you. God knows you're confused enough. But I want to tell you something. You actually think that the Lord of this universe took that water at a wedding? Now there was what we know and turned it into the devil's cup and gave it to the people. Do you really think he did? Based on a definitive passage we've had in the Bible. <sighs> my, my, how a little light will illuminate the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now here's how it works. You want to get this down. Every major doctrine in the Bible will be, uh, will, uh, uh, with, uh, will be laid out uh, through a definitive passage or a definitive verse. That's just simple. That's rule number one. Deuteronomy chapter 32 will be our definitive passage and our verses on wine, strong drink, and alcohol. The devil now, we know, has a cup. The devil has a vine. He has a wine. It's fermented. We also know that God has a cup. He has a vine, and it's wine, and it's a pure blood of the grape and a type of Christ's blood. Now, once you have the definitive passage down, now you know that drinking is not about how much you drink. Once you understand Deuteronomy chapter 32, you realize that the issue is never how much you drink. It's never your moderation. Never am I a user, abuser, or am I this or that. Now it's about how much of the devil's cup are you going to allow in your life as a child of God. 
That's what it's about. You have to answer that for me, for yourself, not for me. You have to answer that. How much now are you going to allow the devil in your life as a child of God? When I thought, and I may be wrong about this, I thought you got saved to get him out. I I may be wrong. I only got two ladies over here that agreed with me. I may be wrong. I thought when we all got saved, we wanted the devil out of our life. Why do we bring him back in? Why do we? I'll tell you why. Because you've been deceived. Somebody sold you a bill of goods that the wine in the Bible is okay. And it's all right. It's all about the moderation. How much you drink. Now, I've taken you back to the definitive passage. I've showed you that God has a cup. The devil has a cup. God has a wine. The devil has a wine. One is grape juice. One is fermented. One is a type of Christ. The other one is a stinger of an adder and a bite of a serpent. And as a child of God, why do you want that in your life? That's all. You know why people don't like me? I'm going to tell you why they don't like me. I'm just too plain for you. When I'm done with you, you know right where it's at. And maybe some of you don't like it, but you know that's where it is. And I've never worried about that. I never have. As long as God is happy with me and He's blessing my ministry and people are getting saved and He keeps dumping things on me, I'm good with it. Because I learned a long time ago, it isn't about you liking me or me liking you. You know, I like all of you. It's about the truth. When I went into the ministry, just a young kid, there was a guy who was a music director at the Canton Baptist Temple. We had two guys in Canton. One was Mel Shabaka. The other one was a guy who was a music director. His name was Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson didn't believe the King James Bible was the Word of God. Mel Shabaka did. Uh, Bob Johnson was connected with Bob Jones University. Mel Shabaka was connected with no nothing. Other than the Bible. Mel was taking guys out of, his, out, of, out of the church, taking them into his class, building them. Bob wanted to send everybody to Bob Jones University. Joe can tell you how that goes down. He was there for what, two days, Joe, before they kicked you out? Something like that. <laughs> then he became a police officer. Now he can legitimately shoot people. That's the way to do it, you see. So it's a thing where I saw one man wanted to build him in the Bible, one man wanted to send him off the Bible college. I saw one man who wanted to build him in a book, one man didn't believe the book, and he wanted to build him into what he wanted to build him in. And he was a nice guy, and he did a lot of nice things for me. I, I, this, is not a, this is not a slam against him. He helped me in a lot of ways, and I, I, I appreciate what he did. But for me, well, I'll finish the story. When I started to come to Kansas City, he called me into his office, Bob did. And he said, Bob, he says, you know, you're going to Kansas City. And he says, you're going to be working with, with Truman Dollar. Truman Dollar was a great preacher. And he had a good church, Kansas City Baptist Temple. And he said, oh, I'll get it. But thank you. Did we go dead? Or are we just going dead? I don't know why I should be talking. I'm the poor preacher. I'm trying to make a living. Got to get the other mic. Okay. See, what am I going to do? I'll just 
rule of thumb is this. Never give up and drop. Keep fighting and struggling. Huh? Make sure you're loud. Make sure I what? Loud so pick it up better. Hello, hello, hello. We on now? Yeah. <sighs> you always, you guys that want to preach and pastors, they always have a couple of those little things tucked away when things like this happen. Most pastors just stand here and say, "Not me." If that thing would have been down for an hour, I could have gave you a monologue that you would have loved. I I, kind of wanted to tell another story, but I think I'm just going to pass on it. Now, we know the devil has a cup, he has a vine, he has a wine. It's fermented. We know that God has his cup, his vine, and his wine, and it's the pure blood of the grape, represents Christ's blood. Now, see, here's how it works. Once you have the definitive passage down, and you know that drinking is not about how much you drink, but rather God's cup or the devil's cup, and as a born-again child of God, how we never provide anything for our flesh, that we're separated, that we're saved from that, I mean, did you ever notice that when you got saved, God gave you a new birth? He gave you a new nature. He gave you a new name written down in glory. We're going to live in New Jerusalem. You know what? He gave you a new wine. The old wine is associated with the old lifestyle. Why, with all the things that God gave you new, are you hanging on to the devil's cup? See how it works. Oh, I know what I was telling you. Bob Johnson. This thing's got to come around for a minute, you know? <coughs> My brain cells aren't what they used to be. Anyway, <coughs> he called me in. And he says, Bobby says, you're going to Kansas City. And he says, you're going to work with a great pastor out there. He says, and I want to help you. And I said, well, I said, Bob, I do appreciate it. He says, because I definitely need some help. And I said, he said, oh, I got some advice for you. And I said, I need all the advice I can get. He says, look, you're not going to make it out there going the way you're going I said okay he says you're not going to survive out there preaching the way you do saying the things that you do he says you're going to have to tone it down a little bit he says you're going to find that when you get out there you're in the real world now of ministry and you're going to find out that this thing is driven by results and he says you're not going to get the results you need to get being who you are, preaching the way you are, and believing what you believe. I looked at him and I said, well, Bob, I do appreciate that. I really do. And I said, I, I, I know I'm a young guy and you've been around a lot longer than me and you've been good to me and, and I, 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 I listen to everything you say to me, but I need to tell you something. I ain't interested in results. I'm interested in the truth. I've learned a long time ago, folks, not everybody likes the truth. Not everybody wants the truth. Not everybody will put up with the truth. But if you just preach the truth, the truth will always take care of itself. And I don't, I'm don't. i not interested in results. Somebody says, you'll never build a big church. Who said I wanted to build a big church? I'm trying to get half you to leave. <laughs> I'm not interested in building a big church. I'm interested in building God's church. I'm interested in building a church on truth. 
And, and I, you know, hey, and I'm like anybody else. I have an open door policy. I teach heresy sometime. I teach something that isn't true. Make an appointment and come in and see me. You know why you never will? Because you know deep down inside I told you the truth. I mean, I have a lot of problems and a lot of faults. And I'm telling you, I'm as messed up as the next person. But when it comes to standing in this pulpit with that book, I got one thing in my mind. That's God's truth. You find out where I don't preach the truth, you come and let me know about it. It's your obligation and your duty. Strap on your six shooters, meet me in high noon out in the street, and we'll shoot it out. I told him. I said, to me, it's not about, it's not about results. Never has been. That's the problem with churches today. That's the problem with pastors today. They're too interested in results. And I'll tell you what, when you're born again, it's not how much, it's not much how much you provide, uh, provision you make any place in your life. It's about uh, what are you going to do with what God has given you? He's given you a new birth. He's given you a new nature. He's given you a new name. He's given you a new heart. He's given you a new Jerusalem. Why would you not accept and understand the new wine that he gave you? You see how simple it is? As a child of God, I want nothing to do with the devil. Maybe you do. Maybe you actually so stupid they think you can play with him. You gotta read Job chapter 40 and 41. You can't play with him. You can't, you can't entice him. You just can't, you can't let him in your world one inch. I don't want his Bible. I don't want his cigarettes. And I certainly don't want his cup. There's a lot of God's people to smoke. I don't fight it. I mean, it's your choice. But I do know this. The only people in the Bible ever had smoke in their lungs are people in hell. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. So when you find wine in the Bible, now here's the key. When you find wine in the Bible, he won't always tell you it's new wine or or old wine. He just says wine. And the reason why he does that is because you're supposed to understand in the definitive passage that there's two cups. So you look at the context, and you know that if it's in a bad context, it never could be God's wine. And if it's in a bad context, or good context, it never could be the devil's wine. You see, that's how he does things in the Bible. It's based on the definitive passages. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8, told you that there was a blessing in God's cup. You know what that blessing is? It's the blood of Christ. That cup, the pure blood of the grape, represents Christ's blood. And Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 32 through 3, told you that the devil's wine was connected with, with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was bitter, the poison of ass, cruel venom, dragons, and a snake. And it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And God's people have been deceived. We live in a time that Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 talked about, where now we call good evil and evil good. And you've taken the devil's cup and made it God's cup, and by doing so have made God's cup equal to the devil's cup in your life. And you stand in your pulpit on Sunday mornings and you tell your people that's okay. And some of you people have a problem with me standing up here and speaking out against these guys? Turning God's cup into the devil's cup and you're okay with that? Maybe you better do a little soul searching in your own heart and find out what that day of salvation was all about to you. Now you ask, why did God come out and do it that way? Why didn't he just say what you just said? I mean, it would have been so much easier if he'd have just said the way you said it. Yeah, but if he'd have done that, then I wouldn't have anything to preach this morning. (laughs) Two reasons for it. First of all, we're to study to show ourselves approved. God never just lays the things on the surface. 
The things that you really want to learn in the Bible, you want to learn about God, you've got to dig to get them. You've got to show yourself approved unto God, a workman, which need not be ashamed, judgment seat of Christ, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know what I did today? We divided the word of truth. I divided God's wine from the devil's wine. Made it very clear to you. And if you've been saved 10 years or more in here and you don't know what I just told you this morning, there's something wrong with where you've been hanging out. Everything in the Bible that is a major doctrine is based on a definitive passage. And when it comes to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, there's no contradiction that he says wine and strong drink is raging and you're deceived by it. And then but Jesus turned water to wine over here in John 2. What is the matter with you? You're too lazy to go back and search that thing through, find it out, and let the Bible show you. Now, i got to tell you the second one, why he did it. And this is going to hurt a little bit. Second reason he did it the way he did it is simply this. If you want a lie to believe, God's going to give you one. Just that simple. If you want a lie to believe, that you want to believe what you believe, God will make sure you get the lie you want. He'll make sure of it. Your attitude of heart and you getting the truth depend on your attitude of heart with God. And when attitude of heart is against the word of God and you want to believe something else that God's not given you, and they, you, that's where your heart is, he'll answer you according to the multitude of your heart. I'll show it to you. Don't take my word for it. I'm a heretic. Remember me? Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, this is the verse of the people who are left after the rapture of the church. And I know, you got a thousand books out there, left behind, all these nice movies, you know, that shows people being left in a tribulation period, a rapture takes place, and there finally comes the realization that they didn't trust Christ when they should. And so now, in the, in the tribulation period, they're running around, they're trying to run. And you actually got churches and Christians that are actually burying New Testament Bibles out there someplace. So in the tribulation period, uh, these people that got left will find them and come to Jesus. They're laying tracks all over the place and all this stuff. You are out of your mind. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, this is specific for people who missed the rapture of the church in the church age. Verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. All right, there's somebody who did not receive the love of the truth, that they could be saved. They rejected it. Verse 11. Let's read it. And for this cause. Let's stop. What cause? Cause of verse 10, that they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. That's the cause. And for this cause, what cause? Just do it one more time. I just feel like doing it twice. For what cause? For they reject, they didn't receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. See? For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they may believe a lie. See that thing? Going to send them a lie to believe. You say, God, God doesn't lie. He ain't lying. He's sending them a lie. He ain't lying to them. He's taking what they already believe. And reinforcing that because they had a chance to receive the word of God, rejected it. Now let's see that. And God, and, and for this cause, God shall uh, send them strong delusion that they might believe should believe a lie. Why is that now? Why is that? Verse twelve: that they all might be damned. Ooh, that's not very positive. In other words, here's a bunch of people who missed the rapture, who heard the gospel in the church age. When a rapture comes and a tribulation starts, God sends them a lie. They get deceived for the purpose of being damned because of the fact they held the truth in unrighteousness and wouldn't trust Christ their own personal Savior. Verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, you see, that's human nature. You know how many Christians over the last 50 years of my life 
wouldn't get saved because they were going to live their lifestyle and do what they want to do now because they thought once the rapture took place, that would be time to come to Jesus. That's human nature for you. That's human nature. You want to put it off because you want to live your life the way you want to do, and you think there's a fire exit, and that's what you're going to take. You think that once the rapture comes, and now it's going to time to get serious with Jesus, and after you lived your life, did what you wanted to do, had all the riotous living you want, now that the rapture's taken place, and here we are in the final seven years, I'm going to now get saved, and I'm going to do what's right. You think God is going to honor that? He shuts you down like a bad habit. He sends you a lie. He lets you believe what's in your heart. I'll show it to you again. My, my. Come over to Ezekiel chapter 14. You want to see this. This is God dealing with Israel. Who's just like me and you. Ezekiel chapter 14. Let's read the first five verses. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the Lord Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up the idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of them at all, of them, by them? You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, I'm telling you, man, uh, these guys have already got their mind made up. Their heart's against me. They put a stumbling block of their own iniquity in there before their face. Should I be required of anything to them to do for them? Verse 4, verse 4, speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, the prophet of God, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. Why? That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they all estranged from me through their idols. You know what he's saying? God's going to take what you got in your heart when you don't want the truth, and he's going to get you to believe that that's exactly what you should do. And then he's going to nail you with it. That's why the Bible says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. That's why the Bible says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to according to thy word. That's why the Bible says, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Goes back to the book and your attitude of heart about it. When you got your mind made up that what you ever want to do is the right thing to do, and you reject the clear teaching of the word of God, and that's why so many God's people come around and say, Well, God blessing me. You know, well, I'm building my relationship with God. I, you know, you don't judge me. I'm, I'm, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. You bet you are. You're right in Ezekiel chapter 14 with God. You don't, hey, light rejected becomes lightning. You reject the truth of God, want to do your own thing. God says, have at it. I'm going to give you the lie. Do you believe? I'm going to answer you after the multitude of the idols in your heart. You want to believe that, that uh, you can drink in moderation? You want to believe that Christianity is okay? You don't be a user, abuser, and all that stuff? Go ahead and believe it. You want to reject Jeremiah 32 and what that guy gave you this morning? You want to keep, don't see it as, as how much you have, but the devil's cup versus my cup? You want to go ahead and believe that? Go ahead! I'll give you everything you want to bring you to the end. And he will. This is the importance of the Bible. When God establishes the truth, it becomes absolute. I don't have a right to change it. I don't have a right to step around it. I accept it for what it is, even when I don't like it. The importance of the Bible is the final authority in all things of faith. That's what we believe and practice. That's what we do. You lose that absolute standard, and you have, and you have what we have today in churches, apostasy. Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22 talks about the Laodicean church, the church that makes God sick. Verse 11 says that it's filled with Christians that make God sick. He spews it out of its mouth. 
Now, I think a church, a pastor, needs to be clear about what he believes. Now, there's no room in the ministry of, of, of hiding things that you believe. Everybody ought to know face up what the cards are. A church should never, uh, a church should never cater to the whims of the people. You don't, it doesn't mean you don't help people, you don't give them what they need, you see somebody struggling, you want to get them to where they need to, you do everything you can. But the church doesn't exist to please you, it's here to please God by preaching God's truth. You need to understand that. And sometimes that truth will rub you the wrong way. You need to understand that. I wish every message I would say would be positive. That isn't going to happen. If you want that, and you'll find that in most churches, but you won't find it here. You know why? Because I'm not going to lie to you. Not everything in life is positive. And there'll be a lot of negative things you've got to deal with. And sometimes those negative things will be you and your attitude of heart. Now, I never pick on anybody to preach at. I've had, I've preached messages before where the husband said to the wives, or the wife says to the husband, you called him this week and told him everything, didn't you? No, he didn't. She didn't. No, 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 no. The truth has a way of getting into, it's like water. It has a way to getting every place that you've got in every crack and you can't seal it out. And it'll find you wherever you're at. It's like light. It'll get into every crevice. You can be in the darkest room in the world and one little crack at the top and light will come in. And I don't care how black you make your life and how dark you make it, how deep you make it into sin. When that book comes around, the light will work its way in. A number of years ago, I wrote a book. In fact, it was my second book. It's too sold well under a million copies. It was the charismatic movement. Wrote it 30 years ago. That book has probably been used by more, uh, more times than any other book uh, I've ever written to deal with the heresy of the charismatic movement. Leo Humphrey was a great evangelist, and he was a good friend of mine. And, and some of us have been down in El Salvador with him preaching on the street down there uh, in times past. He's dead now. Uh, he once told me that he, he, he would buy him about a truckload. He dealt with a lot of charismatics down in New Orleans and those places. And down in Central America, they had it done in Spanish. And he said it was, a, he said it was the greatest book he ever read on here. His famous phrase, well, this book will either cure you or kill you. People need to know where you stand based on what the Bible says. People need to know what saith the scriptures. And we make no apology for it here. I don't. The truth is the truth. You know, it's a, it's a thing where years ago I used to get invited to go to colleges and they'd, uh, in these young college classes, like kids like yourself. And they'd, they'd, somebody would get me in and they would have an atheist or they'd have an evolutionist or they'd have a liberal, somebody over there. And, uh, and I would always be the Christian. And they'd, they'd, we'd go back and forth. Then they'd have an opening form and a statement and all that. Everybody got to have an opening statement to tell themselves. And I always thought the best thing I ever did was when I, when I first, I usually got to go first. Um, I always said, you know, I want to thank you for letting me be here today. And, you know, I really look forward to here. And, I, you know, and I'm excited about being here. But I said, I just want to let you know in my opening statement that everything that I believe and everything I'm going to tell to you is going to come from the Bible today. I said, I may be a pastor, but I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And I said, unlike my, 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 my friend over here, uh, I believe that everything, uh, everything in life revolves around the Word of God. He doesn't. So I want you to know today, I want you to know today, that everything I'm going to tell you is coming come from the greatest book that was ever written that ever hit this planet. It's a book that is all truth. The Bible doesn't contain truth. The Bible is the elements of all truth. And all truth is contained in this book. So I just want you to know, what I'm coming from today, I'm coming from the Bible. 
Where he's coming from today is the opposite end of the universe. And I want you to know that. I don't know how many times when I said that, I got applause from the people in there. They were Christians. Now, that did two things. It established with them who I am and put him in a hard spot. Because nobody's clapping for him. And it gave me the opportunity to declare where I'm at. Because I want to tell you something. When you're going to get into something with somebody, or you're going to work with somebody, or you're going to try to get your point across to somebody, people need to know where you stand. And as long as you've got God's cup in one hand and the devil's cup in the other, they're never going to understand where you stand. As long as you've got God's Bible in one hand and the devil's Bible in the other hand, they're never going to know where you stand. As long as you've got one foot in the, in the world and one foot in, in, in church, they're never going to know where you stand. God help us to have some men and women who are truly born again, who are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old things are passed away and all things become new. And they know that they have been separated from the world. They understand now that it's not about how much you drink or how much you don't drink. It's about God's cup and a devil's cup. And you realize that God gave you a new birth. He gave you a new name. He gave you a new nature. He gave you a new Jerusalem. And he gave you a new wine. Why are you going to take all the other new things accept the new wine and keep the devil's cup. You got to answer that. You got to answer that. So now you know, it's not about being a user, an abuser, an alcoholic. Not at all. It's how much simply of the devil are you going to give yourself to. After God saved you and God died for you and separated your soul from your flesh, how much are you going to bring the devil back into it? Once you know that your your whole direction in life is dependent on where you put your spirit, are you going to put in God's spirits or are you going to put it in the liquor store spirits down the street? That's what it's about. How much of the devil will you allow uh, in your Christian, godly, separated life? And taking his cup over God's cup and in your mind, making the two the same. So now we're on the record. Now you understand. It isn't about the moderation, how much, how little. It's about, there's two cups in the Bible, clearly defined in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And you as a child of God, are you going to take one or the other? You can't have both. You're going to take God's cup, which is the pure blood of the grape, which represents the blessing of his blood for you and for me. Or are you going to mix that with the devil's cup and just make the most blasphemous mess out of your life you ever saw in your life? But God's people will do it. And I know, I know what's going in. A lot of God's people hearing this message won't change a thing. Won't change a thing. That's okay. I didn't come here to change anybody's mind. I came here to preach the truth. It's God's going to change your mind, if it's changeable. Well, we'll hold up there.